Gracious God, we thank you for this good opportunity. Help us today to do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. I think that most of you would agree with me that the day that you were born was a pretty significant day. It's a day that, that took some effort on the part of a lot of people to bring to fruition, and there were lots of people, people that you hadn't even met yet, that were anxiously awaiting your arrival. The day that you die will also be a pretty significant day. It will be the day that marks your end of days, the end of opportunities here on earth, and the beginning of your days in glory. Hopefully, there will be more people that will miss you than those who were anxiously awaiting your departure. Those, I, the nervous laughter makes me nervous. <laughs> makes me nervous for you all. Um, those two days, those two days are much clearer in their importance than most of the days in between. Have you ever considered the most significant moment of your life in this in-between time? That question is not as easy to answer as you might initially think. Take, take my own life, for example. Would it have been the day that I was the first member of my family to graduate from college? That's a pretty significant day. Um, what about the day that I married Pastor Sung? I know that was his most significant day. <laughs> but was it mine? <sighs> he's, he's not in the room. Tell him about it later. Um, how about the day that I got my doctorate? That's a, that's a big deal, getting, getting your doctorate. That's a significant day. Or, and how about this, because I have three kids, the day that I had my kids, and if so, which, which one, right? I, I told the earlier service, I've got three services, I've got three kids, my kids each get a service where they're the most <laughs> significant. But you understand what I'm saying. It's really hard, I think, to, to pinpoint one day that is the most significant day between your birth and, and your death. And in many ways, we think about Jesus the same way. We all celebrate when Jesus was born. We wait anxiously for the arrival of Christmas, that, that first moment of God with us. And of course, we, we remember and celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. We really get into Easter but do we remember what, is, what has happened in between his birth and his death? Because remember, Jesus lived as well. And while he was living, there were a great many things that happened. He made the blind to see. He calmed the storms. He drove demons out of the afflicted. He tossed the tables of the money changers. Which one is the most significant? And the truth is that the most significant event between the birth and the death of Jesus is something that we call the transfiguration. The transfiguration is this glorious transformation of the appearance of Jesus Christ as it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and here in the Gospel of Luke. It's not just the transformation of, of Jesus that makes this such a significant moment. It's also 
the voice of God speaking to the disciples and to us, confirming the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. That makes a huge difference for what is to come during the season of Lent and the resurrection. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up the mountain to pray. While he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, he saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him, and they appeared in glory, and they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. To really appreciate the significance of what's happening in the transfiguration, it's helpful for us to know a little bit about our biblical history and then also the hope that we have for the future that defines our faith. Luke records that about eight days passed between the passage that we're reading today and what comes right before it. If you go back and you look in the Gospel of Luke, and I encourage you to do this, a week before, Jesus was talking to his disciples about his suffering and, and what would ultimately be his death and resurrection. So the disciples have recently heard this, and if you know anything about the disciples, they don't always get things on the first go-around. So they are now hearing this. The other thing that I want you to notice is that they've gone up a mountain to pray. That happens a lot in Scripture. We've got lots of people going up lots of mountains and, and having conversations with God on the tops of these mountains. So when you look at the time and the location, you want to think a little bit about Exodus. When the people of Israel left Egypt and Moses ascended Mount Sinai. Remember, he got to the top of Mount Sinai. He has this experience with God on the mountaintop. Likewise, the faith that we have that Jesus is coming again as a future event helps us to place the transfiguration in a frame of reference to understand all of the imagery that's going on in this passage. And there's a lot happening in this very short passage. So Jesus goes up the mountain, and while he is there, his face changes, and his clothes become a dazzling white. Full confession here, your pastor has never ever seen a full Star Wars movie. I'm proud of it, I don't want to talk about it after church. <laughs> but, but, there is one scene, and there is a character whose name I do not know, it does not matter, I don't want to hear about it after church, <laughs> where you can tell the film technology is just a translucent, almost hologram. Of, of him, and he's talking, don't want to hear about it after church, not interested, but he's almost a hologram, and, and this is as close a, a physical approximation as to what I can give you as to what this might have looked like. So um, it's the image that, that over the years has been co-opted into so many pieces of artwork that our mental image of Jesus is always with this glory around him, this light shining around him. And I mention that because as we go through this particular piece of scripture, what's interesting about it is that it tells the story of Jesus as we know it almost backwards. Almost backwards because it starts with the promise of glory. 
That's, that's where this passage starts, the promise of glory. Usually, that's the last part of the story of Jesus as we know it. So now, if a dazzling Jesus is hard to comprehend, imagine what the disciples must have been thinking when they looked up and they saw Moses and Elijah, both who were long gone before the disciples were even born, standing there having a conversation with Jesus. Now, you look at Luke's description of this, and we have this supernatural event occurring, but he describes Moses and Elijah as regular human beings. Jesus is dazzling, but they're just just human beings. And that's not an insignificant detail, because what that means is that for as powerful and amazing as these two men were in the history of Israel, they are still humans in the face of Christ. They are not dazzling. They're just human. And then even more than that, the two of them together, the presence of them together, circle back to this idea of relating this moment, this transfiguration moment, not only to the past, but to the hope that we have for the future. Moses was not only a lawgiver, he was a prophet, he was a prototype of Jesus. But Elijah is the one who would one day turn the people's hearts back to the covenant of God. Ultimately, for us, it will be Jesus Christ who will do this in the final days. But both of these men are well-respected in the Old Testament. Both of them left this earth with strange departures. And so it seems that the presence of Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration draws attention first to the place of Jesus in the continuing redemptive work of God in the world from the exodus to that first consummation of the kingdom of heaven. Second, it draws attention to the appropriateness of Jesus' association with the heavenly figures. And third, to Jesus' superiority over even the great heroes in the history of Israel. Now remember, all of this happens in, in the presence and witness of the disciples. Jesus, Elijah, and Moses get into a conversation about Jesus' imminent departure, which I love. I love the fact that, that Luke, just like we do today, has euphemisms for death and, and what's coming. Jesus' departure, right? And so... So we know that this is going to be the death and the resurrection of Christ that is being told to us. This is now the second time in a very brief period that disciples are hearing this information. And we hear that this, this, from, in this news that this is going to pl- take place in Jerusalem. And at this point, at this point, we start to see that the passage is continuing to tell Jesus' story backwards. It started with the promise of glory and now has moved to the prediction of the passion of the Christ. Then there's this weird break in the action of this passage. Now, Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with them. And just as they were leaving him, Peter says to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. I truly believe that if they had done tombstone inscriptions back when Peter was alive, 
and, and then when he passed on, that Peter's tombstone would say, here lies Peter, he knows not what he said. Right? <laughs> Poor Peter, he just, the, the words just come out, we didn't think it all the way through. I've also always felt that the disciples must have been the most exhausted people on the planet. Because every time we turn around, they're either asleep or going to sleep or on the verge of sleep. I don't know what they did all day long because Jesus did all the work. They're just standing there, but they go to sleep. They can't seem to keep themselves awake. So the report that we have from Luke seems to indicate that Peter's almost in a daze here. He's kind of like in that, that twilight space of not really asleep not really awake. When he sees Moses and Elijah getting ready to depart, he, he comes up with this great idea that we're just going to build houses for all of them up there on the mountain, and they're all just going to stay there for, forever. It's going to be great. And Luke was, Luke was right to include that part there about Peter had no idea what he was saying. Because maybe, maybe Peter was just so overcome with the presence of greatness that, that his thought, his immediate course of action was, let's just trap them here. We'll just hold on to this greatness for as long as we can. And as much as it doesn't make sense and it seems a little silly, it's almost the same kind of response that little kids have when they find like a frog or a lizard and they come in, they're like, I'm going to build it a home. We're going to keep it forever. Doesn't make sense. We know that. But that's where Peter was. This is indicative of the truth that, of the truth that the disciples still don't really understand what's happening in all of this. And that's the exact moment when God decides to speak. While he was saying this, a cloud came down and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and in those days, they told no one any of the things that they have seen. If you have ever wondered what it would feel like to be enveloped or overcome by the presence of God, this passage would be a really good place to start. Because the cloud comes and descends on the disciples, which, which we know by learning a little bit about our Old Testament history, we know that God shows up in these clouds. This is not an unheard of event. And so the, as Jews, they would, have, they would have identified with this. And then the voice speaks from the cloud. It is God, the Father himself. I think sometimes when we read this passage, we, we get so transfixed on this dazzling Jesus part that we forget that the voice of God spoke directly to the people. There's no mediator there's, there's just this very clear voice saying, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. Jesus is identified as the son of God. Listen to him is not just a command, it's a correction of our human tendency to substitute human opinion for divine revelation. So by the time we reach this point in the passage, we've seen the promise of glory, the prediction of the passion, and now we have this affirmation of Jesus' identity as the Messiah. Like I said before, we are seeing the story of Jesus told in a reverse order. And that is what makes this singular event the most significant event 
in the life of Jesus. The fact that God has said, this is my son. He is the one. There is no other. Listen to him. To further illustrate this point, you look at verse 36. When the dazzling white was gone and Moses and Elijah disappeared and the voice went silent, Jesus is found alone. It's Jesus standing there. So after all the disciples had seen and heard, ultimately, they find themselves in the presence of Jesus alone. Why? Because this is Jesus' moment. This is his moment. That moment of great clarity where we understand he's the Messiah. The passion is coming, and he will reign in glory forever. I don't know what your most significant day was or will be, but even though he turned water into wine and fed thousands and walked on water, this, this day, the day that we hear for certain that he is the one, this is the day that transcends all other days as the most significant day in the life of Jesus and a very significant day in the life of God's people. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that you love us enough to send your only son into the world. And even when we can't recognize it and receive it, you take the time to come down and just tell us directly that he is your son and we are to listen to him. As we gather at the table now, we give thanks for the bread, for the cup, the reminders of the sacrifice that your son gave from a place of love for each one of us. Sustain us in the work that we are about to engage on as we enter this season of Lent. Prepare our hearts for what is to come. In your name we pray. Amen.